You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We've become complacent, and you say this complacency could eventually end very poorly for America. That's correct. It's changing our notion of the future. American society is losing its dynamism. Our idea of progress is gentrification. In the 1950s, the idea of progress was like wildly utopian science fiction. This to me is very worrying. I think we need to spend more on our future, take more chances, be less conservative in science. What I see is I live in a world surrounded by tenured academics who mostly just, believe it or not, play it safe. So you almost think the country and the government has gotten a form of tenure. Correct. So what's your worst case scenario with this? that we stop being credible, we have a mess with warfare, and here we have a return of something like the 1970s with high unemployment, high inflation, a kind of stagflation. What are the steps in between now and then? How do we get to your worst case scenario? I picture this fat, bloated American laying back, soaking in high wages off of the backs of more aggressive global economies. <laughs> eating delivered food and never moving and having drones deliver everything they need. 
So I'm interviewing here with one of the smartest men on the planet. Are you going to deny that? <laughs> I'm going to deny it. You have to, just to be self-deprecating. That's correct, and meta-rational. So Tyler Cohen, you uh, just wrote the book, The Complacent Class, you're, you're, which is excellent. I highly recommend it. You have this great way of synthesizing lots of concepts about the economy, philosophy, politics, the current economic and political situation into simple uh, concepts. In this case, the complacency of America and what that means. Your last book, Average is Over, was also very brilliant, uh, and we could discuss that. You're Professor George Mason, but also it seems like you read a new book every 12 seconds and then write about it on your very popular blog, Marginal Revolution, and you have a podcast where you've had Malcolm Gladwell, right? Correct. Or you had Gary Kasparov, uh, you have Atul Gawande, you've had all these great guests. So yes. how do you get everything... Before we get into the complacent class, obviously you're not complacent. Oh, and I just want to mention too, you were New Jersey state champion at what, the age of 15? 15, correct. So, and you, you're you uh, probably stronger than me at chess, although we're, we're not going to test not that out. Not by much. We're, we're both uh, chess masters, but so you're the smartest guy on the planet. How do you get so much done? You're obviously not so complacent yourself. Sleep well every evening, wake up reasonably early every morning. What, what does that mean? Mm, between 6.30 and 7. Make sure you get the most important things done before noon and read 10 times faster than other people. Okay, let's... let's and, and learn how to work with others and like how to, how to do things. So, so what it is you can't do and then have other people tell you what to do and actually listen to them. Well, let's look at every one of those. So, okay. So... Uh, getting so if you're getting like what eight hours sleep and waking up at six, maybe seven. So okay, so you're going around sleep between ten and eleven. Do you watch a lot of TV? No, don't watch TV. I watch the Americans with my wife because she's from Soviet Union. But NBA playoffs, that's it. All right. So 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 you're reading at night. You're getting all your reading, reading at night. Absolutely. How do you every read night. ten times faster than everyone else. I was born that way. I think I was born hyperlexic. What's hyperlexic mean? Uh. Some number of very young people, they can spontaneously teach themselves how to read and mentally manipulate written symbols at a much faster pace. This is like a thing. It's a small percentage of people. I believe I'm one of them, and I've always been that way. Can I teach myself to be hyperlexic? I mean, I read pretty fast, but not. it seems like every two days on your blog, you have, here's what I'm reading now, and it's like five 500-page books. <laughs> I don't think it can be taught. You know, my mother used to tell me, oh, Ty, when you were two, you taught yourself how to read. And I thought she was just being a mom, like moms will make stuff up. But then I learned much later in life, like it's a thing. There's some people who are like that. And I believe it was true. So to me, it's a huge advantage. It's sort of what I've built everything else on. Yeah, because reading, uh, I always say reading allows you to not only live your own life, but basically kind of uh, almost... Uh, absorb the entire life of someone else because they pour their heart and lives into the books they write. And, and it gives you a way to kind of absorb these mini lives inside of yourself. So the more you read, the better. That's true. But, you know, at some margin, I feel reading actually is overrated and travel is a more potent form of learning. Not if you've read nothing, but past some point, you should travel more and read less insofar as you have that option. That's interesting. I, I, I probably stay too much in New York. I love New York. There's a problem with New York that it's so wonderful, actually. Yeah. It's a curse. I live in the suburbs, and they're always boring, and the I love that. suburbs of New York or Of DC? Northern Virginia. Okay. Which are very comfortable, but you're always inclined to leave. You have three great airports. Yeah. Fares are pretty cheap, and then you're off. So, okay, Marginal Revolution, you've, you've, you've been doing it for like a decade, right? 13 years, every day, every single day. Sometimes twice a day. And everything is, um, it's not like you focus so much on like writing these 
huge posts, but everything you notice that's interesting, you comment on and write about. I feel like you, the the factor for you in posting something is if this is interesting and worth commenting on, you'll post it. Uh, that's correct. And I have a kind of obsessive attitude where I don't worry too much about the audience and just try to put forward my vision. And I think that actually works in the blog world better than like tracking how many people are reading or which posts did well. Uh, what do you mean? Because you're obviously still concerned about, I mean, I don't know if you are, but, but it's still, you, you have to be aware of the audience when you put something out there. I try not to be too much. So the blog deliberately looks ugly. It's this weird shade of green that comes from my university's logo, George Mason. And I just ask, well, is this a post I would want to read? And that's an audience of me, audience of one. Uh, that's good. Uh, but, you know, there's other venues where you can try to have greater mass success. But a blog should be about you. You're not being paid. Otherwise, why do it? Well, I think your blog's fascinating. I highly, I've been reading it for years. I highly recommend it to anybody. But let's talk about the complacent class, which is both scary and optimistic. And we'll start with scary first. So your, your point is, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, because I think there's a lot of different points or a lot of different interpretations. Your main point is that I picture this sort of fat, bloated American, you know, laying back on their living room, soaking in, you know, high wages off of the backs of like these more aggressive global economies and just using the remote to watch TV <laughs> and eating delivered food and never moving and having Uber drones like deliver everything they need. And we've become complacent as a result. And so we, we don't we don't switch jobs more. We don't innovate more. We don't um, move around as much as we used to. And you say this complacency could eventually and very poorly for America. And it, and, it, and we had a mini taste of that with the 2008 crisis. That's correct, and also 9-11. Uh, American society is losing its dynamism. We move around less, as you've mentioned. We innovate less. We medicate ourselves more. We're paranoid about how we raise our children. Those would be some other examples. Oh, oh and just to interrupt, and I'm sorry, I'm a little bit sure. of an interrupter, but I found it fascinating the, the point about we medicate ourselves more because you, 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 you compare drugs now versus drugs, let's say in the 60s, and you notice that instead of, you know, this is a weird kind of comparison of good and bad. So we're not, we're not talking about good and bad here. Right. But you notice like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, everybody was experimenting. There was LSD, you know, crack, methamphetamines and so on. And and what what instead what's happened is we've made marijuana more legal, which is kind of this sleepy it's drug that induces sleep. Correct. And you know we're we're in this opiate epidemic, which is again a drug that induces like just like ah I'm not doing it. I'm sleepy. I'm pl pleasantly happy, as opposed to like LSD, which was you know some would argue is mind expanding, or crack, which gets you all hyped up. Uh, so we've kind of we've kind of even resort even the kind of our our drug class has resorted to these complacent, sleepy drugs. Violent drugs are on the way out. Of course, this is on net a very good thing, but it's also a sign of an underlying malaise, and I find it ever so slightly hopeful. There's a minor comeback of LSD with the educated classes. Not that I approve, I don't. I haven't done it, I don't want to do it, but as a cultural symbol, I think it's showing this tiny move in the direction of more experimentation. Yeah, particularly, I mean, I was just reading, um, and Stephen Kotler's been on this podcast, and he mentions in his most recent book uh, how almost every billionaire in Silicon, Valley, in Silicon Valley he meets experiments with hallucinogenic drugs. So I thought that was just an interesting comment on his part. This podcast is not about drugs at all, but I just find it <laughs> But it's, it's interesting, interesting that it's the billionaires in Silicon Valley yeah. who are probably our least complacent class. They're both the thinkers and doers in some kind of integrated way. So, so, so let me 
play devil's advocate for a second because I think that's how we could attack the issues of the book. You say that people move less uh, and I think there's there's some good reasons and there's some bad reasons. One reason you mention is, or one reason I can gather is that, you know, uh, you know, people are in such debt, you know, with student loan debt and household debt and so on. It's kind of harder to move around. Like we're, we're, and also wages are on the decline that you mentioned. Yes. So since 1969, the average male wage versus inflation has actually declined, which is amazing. So with wages on the decline, but let's say household prices and debt going up, there's less incentive to take a risk to move to another city and try your chances. And there are fewer cities that are just blossoming with new job opportunities for the middle class. So in the old days, a lot of people would say, move to Detroit to work in auto plants, or they would move to Houston to work in the energy sector. Now, we have Silicon Valley. A lot of people do move there, but most people actually don't have the skills to contribute and or the rent there is too high. But is that because also now cities are becoming more uniform in terms of opportunity? So like Silicon Valley aside and Detroit aside, you mentioned on your blog, uh, Fort Lauderdale just sold, uh, you know, there, there was a company, Chewy.com, which just sold for over $3 billion. Like it could be now our second tier cities are, there's just as much opportunity. So there's less reason to move if you want financial success, particularly since rents are lower in other parts of the country. You know, most people work in the service sector. So there are dentists everywhere. If you're a dentist and you're living in Columbus, Ohio, does it make sense for you to move to Denver, Colorado because people there have more teeth? Not really. So the internet also makes it easier to figure out early on in life where you want to be. That's the good side of people not moving. And then you move there and we observe people staying. Two earner couples are probably another reason why there's less moving around. Uh, so a lot of reasons, good and bad, but it's changing our notion of the future, it's now harder and harder for us to imagine an American future very different from the present. Our idea of progress is gentrification. In the 1950s, the idea of progress was like wildly utopian science fiction. Right. Okay. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'll, I'll always play the devil's advocate here because, and, and I think ultimately you're on the side of of optimism to uh, the Julian Simon argument in, in economics that things are progressing always more than than people think. Correct. I'm, I'm just roughly summing that up, but. Uh, uh, when I imagine a future now, I think of self-driving cars that fly. <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> of uh, genomic printing, you know, pr the ability to simply print new genes. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, much better healthcare, uh, 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 much better AI, robotics, which you argue could lead to complacency, like much better AI leads to better matching. So, so I'm, I'll never explore new things on my own. I'll be just recommended by these matching engines. Oh, here's a, a woman for you. Here's a song for you. Here's a video for you. But at the same time, these are kind of science fiction views, which could make my life better. Well, let's take just one of those self-driving cars. First, there will be a huge problem actually getting them up and running at scale. Imagine coordinating the regulations of every city, every county, every state, the federal government. Eventually, we'll do it, but it can take us decades to build or rebuild bridges. It can take us years just to rename a bridge. So our complacency will push those off into the more distant future than need be. But also, there's something about self-driving cars I find a little disturbing, even though I think they'll be a big advance. It used to be we drove the car. And at some point, it will be the car drives us, controls us. We won't be allowed to speed. Someone, something will always know where we are. Uh, this is a little spooky, I think it, you have to admit. It's spooky in a, uh, in a spooky science fiction society. But like, who really cares where I am at any given moment? 
Uh, if you're facing lawsuits or if you've broken the law in some way, I think a lot of people care. That information will be hacked. People who do strange things or who go to buy drugs or who drive to the wrong part of town, uh, people will think much more carefully about what they do and where they are all the time. Again, on net, I do think it'll be a big plus, but it will make us all in some ways more cautious, more careful. Right, but uh, okay, let me let me throw other uh, side effects of self-driving. We won't need to live as close to the city where we work because... I can now work in the car and live a little further from uh, uh, my actual place of work. Driving will probably be safer, so there'll be less accidents. Uh, uh, so more people will live or, or suffer less, you know, violent injury from car accidents. Um, so there seems like there's good, you know, I, there seems like there's good from from self driving as well. Driving will be safer. That's a huge plus. I'm not sure it will be easier to live far away from cities. If we were to, you know, refit all of our roads and bridges to adapt to self-driving cars and have the speed be 120 miles an hour and everyone has to have one. But that, I think, is 100 years away. Until everyone has one, I think they will be slower and there'll be more vehicles on the road. People will send out their self-driving cars plus the robot to pick up a thing of milk at the Whole Foods and that will come back home. There'll be a lot more traffic. It could just be rents go up in the center city and we end up more stuck with low rates of geographic and economic mobility, at least for decades. Yeah, so so, but again, though, let's say I can send a robot to pick up milk for me. That leaves me time to be at home doing dynamic things as opposed to picking up milk. I can start a company or come up with ideas or write a book or whatever. People will be at home much more. The same with Amazon delivery and Netflix and maybe someday drone delivery. I think that will make dynamic people more dynamic, uh, but most people aren't dynamic, and it will make the less dynamic people, all the more complacent because they'll sit at home, things will be brought to them, life will be easy, uh, they'll, they'll feel passive, in some ways they'll be happier, in other ways they'll be frustrated. But the long-run problem comes if you make leisure too attractive relative to innovation, someday you have to pay the bills. You know, it's, 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 I kind of want to um, reel back in a little bit and just discuss how you got to be where you are. Like it's, You sort of have this dream job where you get to kind of sit around and read and write and think all day yes which which I like and admire and I think a, a lot of people would would like to do that but I um um I, I but I, I'm gonna go back and forth between that and and this complacency thing on the one hand you and you point out it's not such a bad thing we got to this state where life is just good so we don't feel this overwhelming urge to hit the frontier. So America, as it was growing, we were kind of had this notion that America's always going towards a frontier. I still feel that in this virtual way, we're always trying to hit a frontier. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, exploring space, you know, trying to uh, improve biotech, you know, again, all these innovations. And you're saying that's kind of a, a privileged few that is moving towards innovation, whereas everyone else is kind of sitting around you know, waiting for the benefits to happen and, and that will end badly. What, what's the bad thing that will happen? Well, keep in mind, some of it also is press releases exceeding reality. So we were told in the 1990s, biotech will be a big thing soon. It still isn't for most patients. I don't see that it, say, increased my life expectancy and I'm 55. So a lot of this is quite a ways off. The bad thing that will happen is that we have run up debts, either explicit or implicit. If our nation had a much higher savings rate, and a higher quality of governance and more responsibility, we actually could make complacency work. So I suspect Switzerland, Denmark, can make complacency work. They are arguably the experts at complacency. Those are wonderful countries. Not trying to criticize them. But the American way has always been to throw a lot of resources at a problem, 
make a lot of commitments, figure out later how to pay for it, and kind of earn your way out of your dilemmas, innovate out of your problems. Yeah, you, you mentioned a really fascinating <clears throat> statistic, which is that which which I see as the real problem, which is that uh, the you know the federal government raises money every year through taxation and maybe some other ways, and now. The, it used to be the federal government had cash to spare. And yes. they, could, they, could, they had choices about how they can allocate it and that could improve dynamism in parts of the country where they didn't think it was so dynamic. Now, federal obligations are too much. Essentially, all the money is committed, so there's less room for the federal government to take an active role in improving the country's um, dynamism uh, as opposed to complacency. So, so, And also, household debt... Uh, is I was just in the New York Times today. Household debt is at its highest level now since 2007. So, uh, what does that mean in terms of dynamism versus complacency? Most of the federal budget is spent on either essential defense or entitlements, which is all about making people safe. And again, I'm not criticizing that, but it's harder for us to spend a lot of money on a space program or cutting back R&D spending from our federal government. You might think this is Trump, but even under Obama's projected budgets, you see essentially the same trends. So this to me is very worrying. I think we need to spend more on our future, take more chances, be less conservative in science. What I see is I live in a world surrounded by tenured academics who once they get tenure, mostly just, believe it or not, play it safe. So you, so you, you almost think like the, the <clears throat> country and the government has gotten kind of a form of tenure. Correct. And I don't blame the government per se. The government is reflecting what voters want. You know, we're all the villains in this story. Right. Although, although the government, you know, because Congress controls the purse strings, right, it's to their favor to have like a lot of cash and then to allocate it out according to the needs of their district. And they've been doing this for decades. So now we're at this point where there's only so much you could raise money and all the money is allocated out. And the elderly win each political battle. The elderly hardly ever lose. And each year there's more of them. They tend to vote. They tend not to be ideologically committed the way a lot of young people are who say, well, only vote for Bernie Sanders or only vote one way. And uh, they swing policy. It's a big problem. It's one of our biggest problems in this country. But don't you see, though, the private sector being more dynamic? Like, uh, you know, you have the Elon Musks and Peter Thiels of the world that um, are increasing innovation much faster than the government would. I'm a big fan of Silicon Valley. I think the people who work there are heroes. Uh, you name two of them. But that said, if you look at most of the American economy, uh, it's not tech. It hasn't been that innovative. That's why real wage growth essentially has been flat for males for about 40 years. And uh, so many areas, you look at travel and transportation. I took the train up to New York City from Washington, D.C. I did that same trip in the 1970s. It's actually not gotten any better. I would say it's almost gotten worse. It's gotten like, worse in yeah. some ways. Flying has gotten worse. Bus networks are smaller. I always wonder about this. Why is flying gotten worse like you you know you even make the point like there's been so many innovations why aren't planes any faster than they were in like 1950 <laughs> progress is hard we used to have supersonic travel to europe right we gave up on it people didn't care <clears throat> you could say planes are better in one way that while you're flying there are more interesting things you can do you can work on a laptop you might be able to connect with your ipad so in that one way flying is better it's less turbulence less turbulence uh flying is safer but getting around more quickly for the most part, is harder. And that's because we've focused on accelerating the movement of information, which has been wonderful, smartphones, uh, and de-emphasized changing our physical world. So what's your worst case scenario with this? That America's allies realize we cannot make good on all of our commitments to them, uh, and they start 
fighting more amongst themselves, trusting us less, maybe building their own nuclear weapons. The fiscal position of the United States government becomes more and more cramped. We stop being credible. The quality of our governance continues to decline, and both internationally and at home, we have a mess with warfare and partial collapse of international order, and here we have a return of something like the 1970s with high unemployment, high inflation, a kind of stagflation. That's it, the default scenario. So, so, so what are the steps in between now and then? Like, How do we get there? How do we get to your worst-case scenario? Simply by doing nothing, proceeding along the course we're on and feeling good about uh, watching Netflix at home. And I guess it's because... What's happening is with the rise of AI and automation and globalization and the outsourcing of jobs and the elimination of certain industries, plus the decline in wages, but the increase in household debt, making it harder to move around, people won't move until it's too late, until their industries are kind of collapsed and then they're suddenly out of a job. Yes, and you'll notice each recession we have, the recovery from it is slower and slower. You would think, oh, with information technology, it should be faster. We're more modern. We're richer, right? But it's not. Each time it's slower. And that should be a kind of wake-up call. People know the last recovery was extremely slow and painful, right? And, and but they don't take into account yeah, what that actually means for our future. Yeah, you know, I never thought of it that way. Like this, So this recovery, it's been pleasant in that it's been a very long recovery. Yes. You know, but at the same time, and maybe, and you've noticed this too, which is probably the result in your book. At the same time, it's not like I know that many people who are happy. Yes. Know, usually in a recovery, everyone's like, whoa, I just got this great new job or I'm making all this money or I sold my house or whatever. But now it's like everyone's scared and nervous. And, and yet we're in this boom, this recovery somehow that's on, on its seventh year or eighth year now. Um, what's, what's going on? It's a complacent recovery. In 1984, the American economy was growing more than 4% a year. Now, if we you know, pull in 2.1, we pat ourselves on the back like, oh, that was pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, and I think we're lower than that. I think the last number yes, was like 1.8. Exactly. Like so if we get above just above 2, we, we, we congratulate ourselves. And there haven't been that many people starving in this recovery compared to some past errors, and that's good. Uh, yeah, they don't call this, for instance, a jobless recovery anymore. I mean, um, unemployment is at 4.4%. You know, the last recovery, which I never thought of this, you're right. The, the recoveries are slower and they seem a little bit more dormant. Like the 2002, 2003 recovery was called a jobless recovery. I don't really hear that word with this recovery. Uh, they're more humane in some ways, but at the same time, I think we're ratcheting down toward lower levels of growth and in most sectors, lower levels of innovation. Uh, the last productivity figures that came in, again, any, any quarter's numbers are highly unreliable, but they showed negative productivity growth. Even if that's an error measurement, like how should that error be possible at all? But, but, but I always wonder again about these numbers because maybe they're measuring the wrong things. Like, for instance, we've seen a lot of retail bankruptcies, but at the same time, Amazon has dominated the world of, of retail. So on the one hand... It seems like productivity, if you look at any one sector, has gone down. But there's somebody like an Amazon that's made it so much better for us that that's why, that's why productivity seems like it goes down. But Amazon is counted in GDP. So I can buy used books much easier on Amazon than driving around. And so I click all the time. That's counted in GDP. And that's just not going up that quickly. So you have some amazing companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google 
and then just a big, big chunk of the American economy that's staying pretty mediocre. But why, why do I even need to have an increase in GDP in the sense that, okay, I'm not going to, my, my kid, my 18-year-old kid, she's not going to buy a new textbook. She's going to save you know, 70% of the money and buy a used textbook. That's it seems like a net positive, even though it's a negative towards GDP. And when you spread that across the whole country and every transaction, it seems like that's a good thing. But that will still be a net positive for GDP because if you save money on the textbook, you'll spend or invest that money somewhere else. So measured GDP is still going up. Again, I would say it's fine if we had a household savings rate of higher than, you know, 4 to 5%. Our government at various levels, our homeowners, our citizens are saving very little, quite often heavily in debt. We have massive implicit liabilities through our healthcare system. However, those will be paid for. And we need to come up with about 10 percentage points of GDP each year to make up that difference. And no one has any idea of how to do it or is willing to be the one to make the sacrifice. Okay, so so I have some, I have answers <laughs> because I'm going to solve every problem right sure. here on this podcast. But I, I want to I ask again, though, um, usually a higher household savings rate is not good for GDP because it means I'm, I'm hoarding cash. Right now, debt levels are at their highest ever. And in fact, GDP is at its highest level because not only am I spending all my money, but banks are more comfortable lending me money and I'm using that money. So wouldn't, wouldn't savings and GDP be reversely correlated? Or to put it another way, if I'm borrowing money, I'm probably spending it and I'm spending more money than exists. So GDP is positive. It depends how complacent your society is. If you're saving more and simply hoarding cash, that may not help the economy much. But if you're channeling it through financial intermediaries who then fund risk-taking, and this rebounds to everyone's benefit, that's when you get higher rates of economic growth. And that's where we're failing. I see. So to explain that, if, if I'm saving money, it means I'm putting it, like let's say, in a 401k, they're putting it in mutual funds, which then fund IPOs, which funds economic Venture growth, capital, and so whatever, on. Venture capital, whatever, yeah. One uh, hopes. I'm not saying that's always what's happening now. But that, that hasn't, that doesn't, that's not really what happens in the economic cycle, right? So, so savings rates actually were higher during the recession, during 2009, because banks weren't lending money. But people that, were afraid, yeah. People we need afraid. savings being higher because people want to undertake dynamic investment, not because they're afraid. And that's not where we're at. If the savings rate just goes up because people are afraid, that's a kind of protection, but it won't get you higher growth. So so, so this is great. I feel like I can ask you any question and you're like a computer that's going to answer all my economic <laughs> questions. So, so um, let's just start with the basics. The U.S. government has printed up this enormous amount of dollars in the past seven years. You know, now it's starting to, to dwindle the number of dollars they're printing. Interest rates have been ridiculously low. How come that hasn't fueled a bigger boom than we've seen? There aren't that many good opportunities for investment. It's remarkable that it's such low interest rates and the money has been there in the system. If banks wanted to expand, expand more credit, uh, people could borrow more. Uh, but again, things have been fairly slow. And the ultimate problem is on the technology side. In the big picture, look at it this way. We have these incredible advances in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. We take fossil fuels and powerful machines, and we combine them to do everything you can imagine. Cars, airplanes, electricity, radios, televisions. Incredible boom. Spreads to the middle class. Spreads to the poor. We've done that. It can't spread that much more. It could and should spread somewhat more. But now we're waiting for the next wave of big things, I'm convinced eventually it will come, some of the tech innovations you mentioned before, but it will take way longer than it ought to. And in the meantime, we're stuck. We're kind of running a race. Will the next wave of innovations and productivity come before our debts and commitments do us in? Right now, to me, it's looking like the answer is no. Yeah, so it's interesting. Like, let's say 
let's say there's uh, self-driving cars and it puts puts out you know puts out of business ninety percent of the auto industry. This is a little bit different <clears> than <throat> when cars replaced horses when the buggy whip manufacturers simply became car manufacturers. Essentially, now there's no easy replacement if the auto industry mostly goes out of business. And so when you mentioned an average is over, people who are in, um, let's say, non-information specific industries, they kind of have to build this new skill set of how they can provide services alongside computers to take the next level in their jobs. You still see this as kind of a solution for people to become more dynamic about how they think about their futures? It's a solution, but it's also showing what the problem is. So within the tech sector, technology is advancing far faster than our ability to educate people, and it is. So super smart people who teach themselves, they're doing incredibly well. Top Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, they're basically all self-taught. I mean, they created the stuff, right? Right, like Elon Musk basically picked up a rocket science textbook and started building spaceships. Yeah, and no one taught him how to build those companies other than his own earlier experience at PayPal and with other entrepreneurs. So the number of people who can do that, whatever it may be, it's pretty small. Those people are doing far better than ever before. It's not some evil conspiracy of the rich. It's just they have highly scarce skills. We would love to spread those skills more widely. But we're just not good at doing that. We should try everything possible to spread those skills through our education system, through the internet, whatever we can do, give people inspiring visions. But it's a tough slog. How do we, when you say give people inspiring visions, I feel like people are trying, right? Like they're looking towards the Elon Musks and saying, oh, if he can do it, maybe I can. But you're saying maybe that's not really what's happening. Like we're just, we're settled with our binge watching Netflix and ordering through Grubhub or Seamless and having TaskRabbit run errands at the pharmacy for us. And and we're not really sitting there thinking, oh, here's an app I can make or, or you know, some innovation I can do. I'm pretty settled. Well, you are not complacent, but it's easier than Depends ever before. <laughs> right, not, not to be very ambitious. And uh, you see even people of, you know, much lower income, they move around the country less. They live with their parents when they're young for much longer periods of time. In part because of student loan debt. Uh, but in part, they're just less interested in striking out on their own. I mean, they are they do have higher net wealth than, say, people did in the 60s or 70s. Then the notion was, I want to buy a car and move out of the home as early as I can. That was the mentality of an earlier time. And now that's somewhat faded. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So someone listening to this, let's say they're in their 20th year in a cubicle at Procter & Gamble, and they see, oh, everything is changing. Like marketing's getting more automated. Product development is being outsourced to other countries or done by AI and robotics. And I'm getting more and more squeezed at the different you know layers of my job, whether it's to, from the side with my peers or my bosses are getting, you know, putting more and more pressure on me for less and less income. What should I do? Ask your company to train you more. And again, that's someone with basically a great job. Keep in mind, in this country, only about 70% of people finish high school. And those who finish college, it's about 38 to 40%. So, you know, most people are not even close to having that Procter & Gamble job. But, like, I, I think the argument is with college, and, and my listeners know, know this about me, I'm sort of thinking because student loan debt has become so high and so hard to get rid of. And, it, and it's sort of this new phenomenon for 22-year-olds to be saddled with such debt sure. that 
college won't be the answer, let's say 10, 15 years from now, that online educate cheaper online education will become the answer to make our kids more dynamic, saddled with less debt. You know, I have my own project trying to make online education work for economics. It's called MRUniversity.com, and we create and put up free videos for people. Uh, we think that's going well, but again, the world as a whole is pretty far away from making that work in the aggregate, and our society is more and more credentialist. So the number of jobs you need a master's degree for or you need an undergraduate degree for is much higher. If I think of my father, he didn't go to college at all. He ended up with a very good job as a high earner later in his life. What did uh, he do? He ran a chamber of commerce with no college degree. Probably would not be possible today. Too much credentialism is one of our biggest problems. It's so interesting because on the one hand, you're right. You need, I feel like to get what 20 years ago you needed a college degree, now you need a master's degree for yes. the same job. But at the same time, you have companies like Google coming out and saying, we're not even going to look to see if you have a degree. So, so there's this split. People are realizing the college degree might not be what it's meant to be. But at the same time, to, to, to work at Goldman Sachs, you need a master's degree in economics or whatever. Or PhD. Or even. PhD, yeah. yeah. So, so how does this get resolved? How, where is this going? It's just getting worse and worse. It will not be resolved. We could resolve it at any time just by collectively deciding we're not going to be this way anymore. I see zero sign of us doing that. Even with Google saying, you know, Google used to look at your SAT scores. Now they're not even looking at your degree. But the tests they give you are so hard. In essence, you have to be either highly educated or a genius like Bill Gates or, you know, so, or Mark Zuckerberg, who dropped out, of course. Yeah. There's no easy path to just say, eh, to college and waltz into Google and ace that exam and do very well there. So you would send Small your kids to college? People. Sorry? You would send your kids to college. Absolutely. And knowing, we did. That there's, knowing that they're not really learning skills that are applicable in the real world. Absolutely. But that return, that private return, has never been higher. And that, to me, is discouraging. Isn't that, isn't that, um, that, at high, that supposed higher return is backward looking? It's looking at statistics from people who graduated in the 70s or 80s? But even people who are at the margin, should they go to college or not, you can measure that at the margin and see they do pretty well if they go. What does it mean at the margin? Uh, the person who is just like at the border, do they get into college or not? So there are some schools, they'll make a decision like at the margin to take in more people. You can track those people, compare them to others. So that's something close to a controlled experiment. Mm -hmm. David Leonard has had some good pieces in the New York Times. And you see even for those people, going to college pays off. So there's this dissonance where it's almost like it shouldn't pay off because the skills learned might not be really that much different than if you kind of go and try to have experience on your own anyway. But at the same time, there's this distance because it does pay off, is what you're saying. Yes, and it gets people into an environment for four years, six years, whatever it will be. Uh, their life is fairly passive. They're told what to do. They go to class. They don't necessarily do that much. Uh, they live in a kind of fantasy world. I think it's actually harmful in some ways. Yeah, like I... um. So I went undergraduate to Cornell. Yes, a tough school, by the way. They don't have grade inflation there. Good for them. Oh, oh really? I yes. didn't know that. You all got all good grades, right? I barely, I barely graduated, so <laughs> I don't know. I had to beg. I, I was not. I had a. I was graduating a year early. Early, like I skipped a year. Yeah. So I needed a three to graduate, and I had a. The last day, I realized I had a two point nine nine nine. That's great. So, so <laughs> I went to one professor and begged him to just up me from like. Literally, it's, I'm embarrassed to say I, I had to beg him to upgrade me from a D minus to a D mm -hmm. in Fortran, and he did, and then I graduated. <laughs> so, so, but I went and revisited after 20 years, and you're right, it's like a fantasy land. Like all the construction they were doing in the 80s, yes, it it like happened, and it's like this adult wonderland now to go to college. It seems. 
So I would say a lot of our problems, like excess credentialism or our lack of interest in making our cities cheaper to live in with more building, we could solve just by willing to solve them. But after decades, it's become clear there's absolutely no movement in that direction. We're going in the opposite way. Why, why don't people know that? Like, like for instance, if I'm New York City, right? So I just, I, you know, New York City just passed all these laws about, you know, potentially anti-Uber, anti-Airbnb, you know, making it harder and harder for people to potentially be mobile and move here. And, you know, rents are ridiculous here versus like a Fort Lauderdale sure. uh, or the suburbs of Northern Virginia. So why don't cities know that that this is a problem? I think cities understand the broad outlines of this, but it's in people's individual interests not to let too many others inside the moat, so to speak. So you live here, you don't want more traffic in New York, you don't necessarily want more people on the subway, your life is great, maybe you understand this logic, but you're not going to go to the barricades to have New York City let more people in. So a lot of people are aware of the logic, some that gives them a motive to be more and more restrictionist. Others object, but they just don't work too hard to change this. Okay, so I'm a young guy or or a young woman. You are say, a young guy. Yeah. Well, not so young actually. But let's say I'm a young guy and I'm um innovative and I want to create wealth in my life and wealth for my family. And I have I think I have ideas. I read a lot. I've I've traveled. I see New York City's too expensive for me because I haven't really started on my wealth building yet. Okay, I'll move to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, an hour out of New York City, not so far, and I'll start building my business there. And because of the virtuality of communication, I can still communicate to everybody all over the world as if I lived in, a, in an urban city. I haven't been to Harrisburg in seven or eight years, but I suspect it is still declining, and it would be very hard for you to make it there. But consider something like Fort Lauderdale, or consider... Yeah, so Fort Lauderdale, say. Uh, maybe it's a good idea. Mm. But productivity requires clusters, concentrated clusters of talented people. That's what makes Manhattan click. It's Does it have makes, to be physical or can it be online? has to be physical. Why? Sadly, there's something about face-to-face interaction. We're doing this podcast face-to-face. We could have done it on Skype. It's better because we're both here. Maybe we can't explain exactly why, but you do go out and meet people, and that works. We haven't overcome that yet. You know... You're you're so right because and I'll tell you the exact numbers. I used to do Skype on yes. podcasts. I don't know how you do your podcast. You do Skype? No, I won't do it Skype. I won't do it Skype anymore because first of all, you meet in person. It's a better rapport, so there's Correct. better communication. Second, we're in a studio, so the audio quality is better. I have four times as many downloads as soon as I switch from Skype to in person. Audio quality is better, but it's mainly about the emotional vividness of face to face. That's hard to replicate. It's why on-campus education won't vanish anytime soon. As opposed to all these MOOCs or online courses. And those are great. They're important at the margin, but I don't think they'll be the center of all of education. And they're a reason why it's hard to, you know, rise to the ranks of the rich and famous outside of the major clusters. You know, you bring up something really interesting, which which another guest of mine has also brought up, which is that because of the um, effectiveness of AI in matching algorithms. Right. So meaning um, I Amazon will recommend better books for me and I won't take as many chances on different types of books so I might learn less outside of my circle of knowledge. But you specifically mentioned several times the matching algorithms on dating applications. Yes. And so now I'm instead of meeting the girl next door who might be uh, from a, from you know has have different economic ambitions than me. 
uh, I'm now meeting people exactly like me in in these matching algorithms. And so, to some extent, generation over generation, that might decrease, that might increase the income income inequality in society. So, so poorer people meet poorer people, educated people meet educated people, and and so on. And then they pass it down to their children. Absolutely. And if your spouse is a well-educated, high earner like you are, just think of the size of that bequest going to your kids. So the main magnifying of inequality effects we haven't even seen yet. But now my kids though are going to build houses, and then the construction workers from this other class are going to be great. They're going to be my kids will transfer money to uh, potentially people from other classes as they require more services. Won't that like um, sort of bring things closer? To some extent, but keep in mind that those lower levels of production, what are really the scarce factors of production? Is it capital? Is it labor? Is it land? It seems to me with building of valuable homes, so often it's land. So a lot of the surplus you create and then later bequeath, that will be captured by owners of land and not construction workers. And that's part of our problem. Uh, construction work just isn't that scarce. A lot of people can do it. More people will come from Mexico if need be. Those wages, uh, they don't go up at very high rates. Right. So you're saying, so instead of, even though it's something that can't be outsourced to another country, what's happening is, that's almost the Trump argument, is that immigration is sort of causing this income inequality. Are you kind of suggesting that? I wouldn't say it's causing it, but if you're asking the individual question, why don't wages rise more in the construction industry? I would say it's because Mexican immigrants will come here to do the work, and I'm fine with that. I'm very glad America can attract people from other countries and they contribute to our dynamism, and if Americans end up doing other actually less physically demanding jobs, that can be a positive, but it does mean those wages won't go up very rapidly. So, so again, let's even go beyond the worst-case scenario where... Um, you know, because complacency right now doesn't seem like such a bad thing. Like, let's say you and I both decided to just be complacent. We'd have pretty relaxing lives on the whole. Amazing right? lives. Yeah, so, so right, amazing. So uh, uh, where does it become the point where someone is slitting your throat because of the complacency? When's the backlash? I'm not sure anyone is ever going to slit our throats, but I think we're seeing the backlash now. So Americans are more polarized politically and with respect to where they live. A lot of that is because of income inequality. So I know a number of Hillary Clinton supporters who say didn't know anyone who voted for Donald Trump. Right. Alternatively, you can drive across country and not pass through a single county that voted for Hillary Clinton. So something's gone wrong with our politics, no matter what side of all this you're on. I think it's obvious something isn't working well. And, or, uh, or working great, right? That's democracy in action. But I don't, you know, say you're a Trump supporter. Whatever Trump promised, he's not succeeding in doing. Right. So I think it's not working well under any point of view. And there's a general bringing in of chaos, weakening of political parties, inability to get things done. I feel gridlock is the wrong word, but it's a bit like gridlock. You end up with a stasis. We're running out of discretionary funds to spend. And uh, that, to me, is a problem right now. So this is not a hypothetical uh, we see our, I see our politics infected. Again, whether you're a Trump opponent or supporter, I think you should feel that way. Okay, so, so uh, I may agree we'll, we'll probably, we'll probably uh, get into that direction. But like right now, as you point out, compared with the 70s, there's much less uh, domestic violence related to politics. Yes. Uh, uh, in general, over the decades, I mean, you quote Pinker, over the decades since 1940, there's been much less violence worldwide. That's great. As a percentage, as per capita. Pinker actually t goes back 
I think 12 centuries and says how every century per capita, there's much less violence and that, and he thinks that trend will continue. But, uh, you know, what do you think that at some point there's going to be a spike in violence in America? Absolutely. I think American history has been cyclical with respect to violence. We have more peaceful and then less peaceful periods. And even if you look at the general history of world peace over the last 10 centuries, the very worst events, the two world wars, the Holocaust, Chinese and Soviet massacres, they're pretty recent by the standards of the whole stretch of world history. So if you view there as being a cyclical model where maybe violence comes with lower frequency, but when it comes, it comes in a worse way because weapons are more powerful, that I think is the correct view of the world and that's much more worrying than Pinker's optimism. Yeah, do you think, um, I mean, it's interesting you, you point that out because Pinker's optimism doesn't really take into account the fact that that violence is now is not anymore person on person. You know, you have to be in person to make violence on a person. Yes. But uh, now it's not the case because you have nuclear weapons that you could launch from thousands of miles away that could destroy entire societies. And they won't be used often. And in the meantime, we'll be saying la-di-da, everything's so peaceful. But when one is used, it will, of course, just be awful. Hard to imagine, right? It's, it's like actually right before you got here, we were joking around um, how nobody lives forever. And I... I was making a joke to the audio engineer and I said, actually, I'm going to live forever because statistically I've lived for the past 20,000 days. <laughs> yes. And so what are the odds? I'm going to die. Almost one in 20,000 so far. I'm never going to die probably, which is of course a ludicrous statistical argument. Nassim Taleb would, would hate me for saying that. But you're, that's your point too, which is that, okay, we as, as a, a human race, we've lived for you know hundreds of thousands of years, but now we have weapons that can destroy the whole human race and we've never had that before. And America as a country has a pretty violent history and the new world has a pretty violent history. And we had these two, I would say, quite strange decades of the 80s and 90s, which in this country were mostly remarkably peaceful and you have progress and communism falls. People feel good about so many things. Tax rates fall under Reagan. And those are the outlier. And it will take us a long time to learn that those are the outlier. And it's actually the more general course of American history that's typical. And a way to read part of my book is just saying to people, look, wake up, read all of American history. Don't think everything is just a linear improvement on the 80s and 90s. Well, it, it, okay, so let's take... The 1920s were also that kind of feeling of optimism and hope. The 1950s had that, and early 60s had that feeling of optimism and hope. Um, do you think it's also possible that our feelings of optimism and hope could last longer each time? Because we've used technology to kind of... Um, Postpone. Yeah. Yes, that's quite possible. But keep in mind, the 1920s are also a problematic decade. You have the worst pandemic ever coming, right? The Spanish flu, mm -hmm. killing large numbers of Americans. That was the 1910s, right? Wasn't well, it's it? like it goes through 1920, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of the end of World War I. Right. You have collapse of the international world order that people were trying to build through the League of Nations. You have massive debt problems in Europe. Sound familiar? You have 1929, before the decade is over, the stock market crash. So you have a window in there with a lot of consumer credit and prosperity and things feel great, but it's really surrounded, packed in, by some pretty terrible events. Do we learn from our lessons in the sense that, uh, like 1929, at least the, the beginnings of, of the crash were caused by massive tariff legislation passed? And do we learn from those lessons a little bit to kind of make those a little smoother, those problems? The main lesson of history is that we don't learn from history. 
Uh, that said, on free trade, e- even with Trump elected, we've done a pretty good job in not deviating too far from that. So maybe that's one lesson we've learned. Well, it's to your point that, okay, Trump got elected by making promises. Is he actually going to come through with those promises? No, he just wanted to get elected. I don't know what he wanted, but what I observe is, you know, I call him the placebo president. He campaigned, change, change, change. The system is rotten. But it was actually all about make America great again, look back to the past. His talk of infrastructure was fixing you know, roads, bridges, and tunnels, which is actually a fine idea, but it's very backward-looking. It's not about the new smart grid or sending people to Mars or biotech. Uh, his vision of America, you know, having fewer allies, fewer immigrants, more traditional gender relationships, not so much political correctness talk. That's the 1950s, whether you like it or not. It's all back to the past. Hillary Clinton, back to the past. Figure from the 90s, basically telling us things were fine under Obama. I'm not going to change anything too much. So for me, a very depressing campaign, not just the candidates, but the ideas there, just not much to them. You know, it's so interesting because I feel just on an emotional level, like forget about the data. And I don't know if this is me being older now, but like, I feel like in the late nineties, there was so much hope and optimism. Like I would wake up thinking, oh my gosh, the world is great and I'm optimistic. And I feel that even though we've been in this not necessarily a boom, but a non-recession for the past seven years or right. eight years. I don't necessarily feel that same kind of hope and optimism. And most people I talk to really are depressed, like because maybe that wage is going down versus debt and and other and and fear of losing their job is going up. Even though people aren't moving jobs, fear of losing their job has gone up. Is that is that me or is that the data or what is what's going it's on? It's in the data and for the world as a whole, <clears throat> the number of free countries is actually declining somewhat. What do you mean by free countries? Countries that are democratic and have a free press. So you look at Turkey going backwards, Syria basically totally destroyed. Putin's Russia, less free than it was 15 years ago. China is becoming less free. Uh, really a number of places where instead of freedom advancing, going the wrong way, the peak of optimism, I believe, was 1995 through 1998. That's exactly right what you're saying. Yeah. Those were the years. Man, I'm glad I, I started my first company then and and... It's probably why it succeeded. I won the lottery just by having being in that being the right age at, between 1995 and 1998. It also means there's, in a sense, too much optimism imprinted on your worldview, which will make you more successful. You'll be willing to try other things and less complacent, uh, but it'll probably cause you to see the world is in better shape than it really is. How can I get my kids to be optimistic? Because I feel like my kids, they're not necessarily pessimistic, uh, but they're not necessarily willing to try or experiment with new things. I feel they they are scared about the future and what they need to do to have a mediocre future. How old are they? 18 and 15. It's too late. <laughs> <laughs> They'll probably do fine. Uh, but whatever you would have wanted to do differently, it's probably too late. Maybe 15, you could still do something. Like, like Have it be clear their bequest won't be large. Have them live somewhere that's not so great and not so stimulating. Let them be bored. And insulate them somewhat from information technology. And and what maybe will you did then? those things. I don't know. But what will happen then? Will that mean that they'll be encouraged then to seek out dynamism because they'll be so bored? Possibly. It increases the variance of their outcomes. If you move them to the Dakotas, it could also work out badly, right? Uh, so there's risk, and then there's certainty of a good enough outcome. So you can't have everything. If you want them to have a higher chance of being truly top achievers, you want to introduce more variance. You know, it seems like Trump 
okay, so I, I'm not political. I really, I don't vote. I, I, and maybe that's bad. Maybe that's good. I don't know. Some people have. I'm the same, by the way. So, so it seemed like Trump did introduce variants in the sense that, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats are, are largely the same in, in a lot of respects. And, and to some extent, Bernie Sanders and Trump on the outliers of the political parties, they also were largely the same. Correct. And, um, but they were different from, let's say, the Clintons and the Jeb Bushes. Uh, uh, and we see that now with almost a united Congress trying to impeach Trump and a united media trying to, uh, you know, Im- impeach or, or have gossip or whatever. And again, this is not like a pro-Trump thing, but do you think Trump introduced variants into the system? I think he did, but that variance is being imposed on him personally. Like, can he stay president? And it's become much less about, will he reform our tax code? Will he regulate or deregulate more? Will he make some change with our trade relationships? Those prospects are dwindling very rapidly as we speak. I mean, literally each day. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I think if you were to ask the average American, why is impeachment being discussed about Trump? Probably most people don't even know any of the issues or laws at all. It's just that the news headlines say impeachment. Yes. And people aren't really involved in the system at all. You know, I think the two parties, whatever they claim are their differences, they and their voters actually agree on how most of the budget should be spent and how most of our foreign policy should be conducted. And now you have this guy come along, his personal idiosyncrasies, if that's the right word to use, are sufficiently extreme that he endangers the smooth running of that. And then all of a sudden, everyone's waking up and it's like, can we let this continue? We'll see how the story develops. But that's how I interpret very recent events. You think maybe people don't really want to, quote unquote, drain the swamp, as they say? No, of course they don't. They are the swamp. Right. Yeah, yeah they elected the swamp. They elected the swamp. Years. That's right. So, And most of the money is not going to lobbyists, right? It's going to entitlement programs, which have <clears throat> important components. I'm not saying get rid of those, but... When you think about how we're spending our money right now, it is, in fact, how people want to do it. You know, you talk a lot about, you know, how much cash the government has left over to spend. And and I know you're kind of a um, quasi-libertarian. Libertarian is not the right word to describe you, but you're like an acceptable libertarian. You're not an extreme yes. on any edge. Um, wouldn't you say that, you know, just according to economic theory and Hayek and so on, less cash that the government has to spend with means more cash that the private sector has to spend with, and the private sector is a better allocator of that cash. Uh, In many cases, but not always. I do think you need a significant safety net that costs a lot of money. There's the defense budget. I'm not sure how high that should be, but it's never going to be cheap, right? Uh, So our government at the federal level will always be draining a lot of cash from the private sector. Does it drain too much right now? Ideally, I would spend much less on the elderly and much more on the young and more on R&D. And if you spend less on the elderly, they'll get sick and die. Well, they get sick and die anyway. But if you look at Medicare, I think uh, there's not a high enough rate of copay for people at certain income levels. There's not enough competitive procurement in Medicare. I think we could bend the cost curve much more than we already have, even without really cutting benefits. And the striking thing about American health care is how much we overuse it. So, so... I want to I want to reel back a little bit, um, and and then I also want to discuss your book. Uh, Average is over, and we 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 still have time here. Um, how does somebody get your job? Like you, you seem like to to me eerily smart, in that you you're able to do lots of different things. You even talk a little funny, in the <laughs> sense that you talk very intelligently. Like people listening to this probably are listening to you. 
and are thinking, boy, this guy's like so smart. How can I, I can't be like that. How does someone kind of improve their skill sets to, to start thinking in this way about the economy? And you're saying it's too late. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think someone can always take steps to improve. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, it depends on the person. If I think of my own history, I started reading a lot in social sciences when I was 13, 14. And since then, I've really tried to work hard on that, like every day. So every, every day is a key thing. Every day, every night. Uh, for the last, oh, I guess since I was 19, I've tried to write every morning. When I say try, I mean I've mostly succeeded in writing every morning, Saturday, Sunday, Christmas Day, get up in the morning, write something, even if you don't use it. It's a great habit. It will improve your thinking. Uh, a lot of it will turn out to be something you can try to publish too. So reading all the time, writing every day, having some strong fixed habits, uh, sticking with it, and being really persistent and having like a 30, 40-year time horizon where when I was 14, I did things I thought, you know, this might pay off when I'm 60. That's fine. Right, because it, it's sort of like, uh, let's say you started reading in the social sciences when you were 14. That compounds. So, yes. uh, because you're constantly uh, exponentially adding your network of connections and, and brain connections, you know, both personal network and your brain network kind of moves exponentially as you gain more knowledge and, and build more alliances and so on. And that's helped you. Uh, I would say for me, I've switched careers many times. It hasn't helped me as much, although I compound things like writing every. It's the every day that's important. So doing some improvement every day I is think incredible. Is yeah, um, but I'm not trying to say everyone should do what I have done. Right? Circumstances will differ. Talents will differ. How did you meet your wife? Uh, online, Match.com. Yeah, and so like it, it. I never would have met her otherwise. She grew up in Moscow in the Soviet Union, and she lived in Maryland. I lived in Virginia, which is a big cultural difference. Of course. <laughs> Well, I think Virginia's better. She thinks Maryland's better. But here we are, living in Virginia, actually. You won. Uh, she was the one. Yeah, I won. <laughs> and so so, so you met on Match.com. Why did you choose her on Match.com over other people? Uh, I thought she was pretty. And, totally superficial answer. And why did she, why did she choose you? Did, why didn't she think, gosh, this guy is like this weird intellectual guy. I'm, I, is she also weirdly intellectual? <laughs> She's weirdly intellectual. You know, I misunderstood the system. And I used Tyler Cowan as my screen name, which you're not supposed to do. So she Googled my name and read my Vita and decided like that was good enough to at least date this guy once. Right. And That's so, how it happened. And so where'd you go on the first date? I, I never ask these questions on the podcast, but I'm really fascinated by you. We went to D.C. Coast in Washington, D.C., and she ordered the halibut with crusted mushrooms. Oh, good memory. How long yeah. have you married? Uh, 14 years. So, so okay. Uh, she ordered the halibut. What'd you order? <laughs> Oh, I think I had uh, some kind of rare tuna and ravioli dish. Je it was Jeff Tonks' restaurant. Now it's closed. It closed last year. And she always jokes to me, you don't remember what we talked about, but you remember what I ordered. And that that's is right. funny. Why don't you remember what you, you talked about with her? I know we talked about travel, but we've had so many conversations since. It's hard for me to sort out, well, which was the first. But what she ordered the first time, I was watching. Oh, you know, halibut with crusted mushrooms, I thought, Eastern Europe. Mushrooms, of course, she loves mushrooms, and she does, and I was right. I see, because you've traveled to Eastern Europe, you saw mushrooms there, and you're able to put everything together. And there are incredible mushrooms in Eastern Europe, and to this day, she always wants the best mushrooms, and it's hard to get that for her in this country. And you've been happily married ever since, you have a couple of kids, you're, you're, you're doing well. There is one daughter, she is Yana, uh, I am now the father, though technically the stepfather, she's 27 years old, oh my uh, gosh. we all get on great. 
and she is now uh, in Vietnam, headed to Laos today. And so, so this is a great example of uh, what a great world we're in. I mean, thirty years ago or forty years ago, we were, you know, Vietnam and Laos were war torn in part because the U.S. tore them apart. Correct. Not not in part, actually entirely. Mostly, yeah. The U.S. tore them apart. Now Vietnam and Laos are like great examples where where Americans can go and create dynamism. Like I have friends who are in Vietnam and creating entire businesses in the U.S., but they live in Vietnam because it's cheap and they have cheap labor there and they just enjoy it because it's the people there love Americans. I think Americans moving to other countries to be dynamic is an ongoing trend that will intensify. And, and I think that kind of goes against your complacency argument because yes, maybe within the borders of America there's complacency, but Americans now have the wherewithal and ability and and we we have this globalization to spread across the world. So that reduces the complacency. If a lot of our least complacent people are finding the need to leave this country, I would say it supports my view. It's great that they can do it, but, but what does it say about here. us? Well, we'll see about that. I know a lot of Americans who've moved to Singapore have done great. They're happy there. It's a wonderful country. Uh, again, in the long run, I do think we will get out of our complacency. We have the talent. We have uh, the cultural ethos of dynamism. But right now, we're stuck. And I think it will take a lot of chaos to force us out of it. What does that chaos look like? That's what I keep wondering, because I'm scared. Some of it will look like the 1965 to 1973 period, in my opinion. Some of it will look like the partial collapse of international order in like the early 1930s. Uh, I don't think we're going to have a big world war or nuclear war, but I see a lot of trouble spots around the world that are not getting fixed and are festering. Like how, how do you fix a North Korea, for instance? I don't think we can. It's a myth to think we can. We're not going to bomb them. We can't do it. They hold South Korea hostage. They have nuclear weapons. Uh, something very bad will happen there sooner or later. But you could have argued that in 1960 about Cuba, and yet now Cuba is essentially the 51st state or 52nd state. Cuba is still a mess. It's a very poor country. Uh, they don't have enough medicines. They haven't really reformed. Their GDP per capita has been shrinking. But well, but that that's because for 50 years they were, uh, I would say, complacent under the wings of Russia that was supporting them. Okay, but, yeah. But now. They're coming under our wing. We're going to help them, presumably. That's I hope, but I don't, it's not happening yet. And tourism to Cuba is turning out to be much lower than people thought. They don't have the <clears throat> hotels or the infrastructure. So I would go short on Cuba. In fact, the whole Caribbean region, not just Cuba, uh, the, a lot of those economies are shrinking. Big debt problems in Barbados, which typically has been a somewhat well-run country. Trinidad, big violence problems. Haiti, not really recovered. What about going further south? You have countries like Colombia, which has essentially eliminated their cartels. So now you have Americans moving there. That's potentially a source of uh, both technological dynamism and real estate, you know, prices will eventually go up. I mean, a lot of Americans are moving there. I'm very bullish on Colombia and they're also not at all complacent. Right. And so it will be the shining star of uh, South America. Probably. I, I agree with that. I mean, but that's also after Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama were originally shining stars. And now that's going spreading through South America, starting with Colombia. Um, you know, and hopefully it will reach down to Brazil and Argentina and so on, but we'll see. I mean, I think it's pretty mixed. Keep in mind, Brazil has more people than the rest of South America combined, and they've been at negative to zero growth for quite a few years now with bad politics. Argentina elected a reformer, has not turned anything around. Venezuela truly moving into chaos. Chile holding even, but losing its dynamism. Colombia shining star. Peru doing great, has potential to be a new Colombia. Uh, Nicaragua stuck and getting far less free. 
Panama still doing well, but days of 10% growth are behind it because China is not growing so rapidly. Costa Rica, pretty sleepy, living off tourism, fine, complacent, but no wonderful future. So very mixed picture. Again, I would say Colombia would be my pick there. Hmm. So, so again, I'm living in the U.S. I'm listening to this podcast. I want to fight the complacency that is happening on an individual level. And you're saying for many people it's too late just because they've got this built-in complacency built through decades of living here. But what can I do? to? So there's every day doing something to improve, like reading or traveling or whatever. What else? What what, what sectors can I start to explore? And you mentioned in Averages Over, uh, start exploring sectors where your skills can be combined with computers to improve your ability to work with them. Um, what do you mean by that, or if I'm explaining it correctly? Well, I would say, first of all, most people, though not all, should spend less time on social media. If you want to have an impact, pick up the telephone and call your representative, or even try to meet with such a person. Uh, consider doing things at the state and local level. Like what? Uh, you know, something in politics. I don't want to tell people what causes to promote, but you can probably have more of an impact at the state and local level. Have more face. What do I go for? What do I tell people at the state and local level? Like, I don't even like politics. Uh, again, I, it depends what state you live in, and I don't want to prescribe to people yeah. the correct politics. I think we'll get a help. Get involved. Is what get involved, saying. yeah, in something that's important to you. Uh, think more carefully about face-to-face -face interaction and why we're moving away from it and try to revitalize that again. And uh, teach your kids the importance of this and take more chances and talk to other people about this. There's how, no quick fix. How do you take more chances? What chances do you take? Uh, for instance, starting blogging and devoting so much of my time to blogging at a time when that was not at all a thing was a big chance I took. It could have essentially meant the end of my career as a respectable figure. It turned out to be incredible for my career. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. I think you kind of defined uh, the the academic blogger career in the sense that you started early enough when I think academics were looking down on on more popular bloggers, and you sort of merged the two to create your own, you know, kind of academic blogger profession. Yeah, uh, doing online education. Uh, is a big chance. Uh, we'll still see how well that pays off. So far, I'm happy with it, but uh, I'd like it to be a lot more popular. How can I help with that? Uh, MRUniversity.com. Watch our videos. That's the help. Thank right. you for putting that on your podcast. What course are you, what course are you teaching? Uh, I teach in the law school. I teach a class called Law and Literature that I have no formal training in, and a credentialed university would in no way allow me to teach that class but I feel it's probably the best class I've ever taught. I pour my heart and soul into that class and spend years studying the works I teach, which range from the Bible to Herman Melville to Franz Kafka, and it keeps me fresh and thinking in new ways. And I don't just teach same old, same old from lecture notes 20, 30 years ago. That too is important. So well, uh, um, I know I keep asking for prescriptions for, for people who maybe you know, are not going to use them, but... You know what else? I, I I don't want I don't want society to fall into violence. So doing something that's startup like, doing something that involves managing other people. I direct a research center called Mercatus Center. I learn a lot. You know, every day doing that, having to deal with problems of other people in some way, uh, that to me really makes my views on other things much much sharper. And I hope that has some positive impact on the world. So just like doing things. Not watching TV, with a few exceptions. Apologies to Mark Andreessen. He's totally dynamic, and he watches a lot of TV. 
Uh, those would be some of my tips. But again, it's so often context-specific. I'm just hoping with my book I've raised awareness of this somewhat. Just if the person is asking, what can I do in a sincere way, you know, that's half the battle. Yeah, so so again, um, Tyler Cohen, there's there's so many things about you I recommend. One is uh, your, your blog, Marginal Revolution. I read it every day. It's incredibly valuable, not only for your own writing, but the articles you link to I could probably ask you questions about each one of those articles. They're very fascinating articles that you that you link to um, every couple of days. Plus, the your book lists that you that you recommend are very valuable. Um, your 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 books, uh, the Complacent Class, uh, which just came out, I I really recommend it. I think it's kind of uh, almost a summation of your prior books. But I'll also mention Averages Over is a great book to read. The Great Stagnation was an earlier book. I don't know if you still. Uh, recommended absolutely, but uh, but I, I I think all of these books are incredibly valuable and and intelligent and and easy to read. Uh, uh, they're not you know bogged down by by academic uh, language or research or and so on. Um, uh, what what are five books you would recommend that people could read other than than yours? Plato, David Hume, the Bible. Though I'm not religious, those are the first three that come to mind. Some of the greatest thinkers. And and you, uh, what about some fiction that people could read? Oh, modern fiction, not not uh, Herman Melville. Uh, give me a year to define modern. <laughs> the Invisibility Cloak, this new Chinese novel. It's super short. I just bought it today on your recommendation. It's an incredible book. It's like Chinese Murakami brings China to life. It's fun. You can read it in one sitting. Everyone will love it. All right. What what else? Oh, again, give me the year that's modern. Uh, I don't know, like the past ten years. The past 10 years, well, my two favorite books are Elena Ferrante, the four-volume Neapolitan oh, yeah? series. Really? Those are some of the greatest novels ever written, like for any century. They oh, are incredible, gosh. but part of the trick is volume one takes you hundreds of pages to get into. So it rewards patience. For a long time, you won't think it's that great. Elena Ferrante and the first two volumes of Knausgaard, My Struggle, the Norwegian author who moved to Sweden. Also a difficult book to get into the, for the first couple hundred pages. No, I don't think so. I think if you don't like it pretty quickly, you should just put it down. It maybe okay. takes 20 or 30 pages, but it's not like Ferrante. You'll know pretty soon. And I think those are the two greatest fictional series of the last 20 years, and I would put them in quality up against any 20th century novel. And uh, in terms of tips on writing, you write every day. What's 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 knowledge can you give people? Because I think I think writing and communication is the most important skill in today's day and age. Writing, communicate in every way. Tweets, memos to our bosses, yeah. blogs, letters. We always communicate now through what, writing. What I find useful is to write out alternative points of view that are not my own. Everyone has their own point of view. They're articulate in defending it. That's mostly what they do. It's, in a way, a big mistake. Write out other views. Write blog posts like, here's what this group of people thinks. And it may seem like a, a pointless exercise, but I think it makes one smarter in the long run to do that a lot. I think that's true, and I notice you do that, and we'll, we'll we'll close with this. But I notice you'll you'll take anything from uh, so, something Bob Dylan might have said to you know rap music to Chinese science fiction to whatever, and you'll kind of assimilate it and bring it into your worldview and and write about it. And I think that's an incredibly useful exercise to t kind of uh, look at things outside of your circle of comfort and and try to see where you fit into those ideas. And I would say in general, like smart and successful people, they're underrated. Like I, I see this, a lot of people, they'll criticize like Steve Levitt, Freakonomics, or Malcolm Gladwell. They'll have some 
set of things they're unhappy about with these people. Uh, those are super smart, super impressive, super able people. You know, Paul Krugman would be another example, whether you agree with what these people say or not. But they are all underrated. The skills they have needed to have to do what they've done, Stephen Pinker, are just amazing. And how much you can learn from them. I don't just mean their writings, but from them, their lives, their careers, how they think about what they do. Uh, what, what do you mean? Like, uh, how do they think about what they do? They have built careers and productivity methods that are just astonishing. And in some ways, that those are their most important contributions above and beyond whatever they've written or edited or done on a podcast. Who they are is, in a sense, if you have a chance, the main thing you can learn from them. What do you see as a productivity thread that, has, that goes through all of them? Uh, they have idiosyncratic methods, which are context-specific, but they believe in them very deeply. And they have some way of feedback that enables them to refine those methods over time. Like what's an example of an idiosyncratic method? You know, if you think of Malcolm Gladwell, he spent all those years writing for the Washington Post. You go back and you read those articles, which I've done. It's very interesting. He does not sound at all like Malcolm Gladwell. But he became Malcolm Gladwell through those years. Dave Barry, the famous comedian, he spent, I think, eight years as an editor of business writing. Now, business writing is the most horrible genre. People having too much PowerPoint, too many bullet points, lists of BS, right? Dave Barry did that for eight years, got so frustrated, he hated it. He ended up being a funny guy because he spent eight years editing business writing. So the point is not to copy him and edit business writing, but to think about how much goes into people who have become like really impressive and smart and successful. And, and model some aspect of your career after that. In some way, but realizing, again, it's context-specific. You're not yeah. just copying, but you're trying to learn general lessons and then apply them to your situation in some manner. Well, Tyler Cohen, uh, author of The Complacent Class, which is both scary and potentially optimistic. Uh, thanks again. I highly recommend the book, by the way. I've, I've read it now twice over. I've read Averages Over. And again, your your blog, Marginal Revolution, is is a must-read, must-daily-read. Uh, is that the best place people can find you? I assume it is. Yes, absolutely. And thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Every podcast I do is so personal and special to me. The podcast is all about how people can be better performers, even peak performers at whatever it is they are passionate about. So help people discover this podcast. Help me, help the listeners. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. And also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltitude.com. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.